Turn in your Bible, if you would, if you have it, uh, Joshua. Uh, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 6 uh, today, and what a, what a remarkable thing. Now we are starting to come into the various components of the conquest. And so this morning we are going to cover uh, all of chapter 6 and the battle of Jericho. Uh, oh, from the time I can remember, uh, I have heard this story uh, from on my mother's knee to in, in our children's Sunday school class to junior church class to telling the story myself. Uh, and perhaps this is not an unfamiliar story to you, which I hope it is not. But at the same time, what I really hope and desire for you is that you will gain a continued appreciation for what this particular story has to say to us and how it challenges our spiritual walk. Uh, it's important as we go to study the Word of God together. Bow with me, if you would, as we pray and just ask the Lord to help us as we study it together. Father in heaven, we, we are so thankful for your Word. Lord, we are indebted to you for giving us this inspired, inerrant, authoritative text of Scripture. Lord, so that we would have our pathway lit to know right from wrong. Lord, to know things that are evil from things that are good. Lord, in ways that as we go and we study it, our souls are enriched by knowing and understanding the living God in his ways. Lord, help us as we go to your word again this morning in the book of Joshua that our souls would be filled, they would be challenged, the Spirit would convict us and continue to help us uh, in the areas to change us in just the right ways that you desire that would bring you glory. So be with us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, it's probably not a good idea in some sense. Uh, I just get done talking about in the starting point class with a number of different individuals who are there about what are the reasons why you don't, you, what, what are the reasons not to leave a church, and yet, what, what are one of the reasons that it says that we list is, is this reality of if the preacher goes too long, that some people give. And now I said, we're going to cover a whole chapter and one whole battle. Uh, let me see. I'm on, so they'll figure it out in a minute. Uh, it's not me this time. At least I can say that. I love it. Don't you love it when it's not you, it's someone else? You can blame somebody else. Look, see? Uh, reality is, is, as we think about that, I think it's, uh, it's interesting. We've got a lot of ground to cover so I'm going to ask you, listen fast. Uh, we can't park in every particular place. Uh, there is so much going on in this particular battle, and we're going to try to take it in sequences to understand it. And yet, I want to remind us, keep your finger in Joshua chapter 6 for just a moment, and I want you to turn back for a moment to Deuteronomy chapter 9, because I think this is a very important precursor understanding that Moses gave to the people prior to entering the land. Now, of course, you can remember, uh, as anything would happen, the closer an a battle would come to taking place, the more nerve-wracking that would be. It's one thing when you're, on, when you're on the one side of the Jordan that is, you know, the Jordan River's overflowing and God's saying, I'm going to bring you into the land. There's, there's another thing when you've crossed over and now you're camped in enemy territory. And now you're, God is saying, this is going to happen. Deuteronomy chapter 9, Moses says this. He says, hear, O Israel, 
You are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So, you. so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Well, I think it's important that we ask a very, very important question as we are setting out on the journey of Jericho. And of all the stories in the Old Testament, and, and many of them are quite amazing, uh, I, I would say the Battle of Jericho is one of those that tends to stick in my mind. Maybe it's because as named Joshua, that was the story of choice that every Sunday school teacher wanted to tell me that story. But there is something that is at stake in the Battle of Jericho. As I was visiting, uh, as I was visiting Israel, and I was uh, down at the site of Jericho where this entire battle took place, there was a brochure that was given. And you read the brochure about the city of Jericho, and it says, it says something like this. It says, it says well, during the, the, during the time that they have ex excavated all the site of Jericho, it is unfortunate that the biblical account of Jericho and archaeological evidence for Jericho do not coincide together. In fact, during the time of Joshua, the city lay desolate and there was nobody here. Now, if you think about what's at stake here, how, we're going to the Bible and we're saying, wait a minute, something happened here. And yet if you went there today, you would pick up that brochure to say that there is not continuity between biblical history and archaeological evidence. Now, I hope to challenge you this morning to, to recognize this reality, is that the Bible in every way and in all its parts and in every one of its wording and all of its history is to the exact specificity that God has designed. What is at stake with, this, with the city of Jericho, with the battle of Jericho, is biblical inspiration, authority, and sufficiency. See, because you come to that, and if you were an individual who were traveling to Jericho, and you read the Bible, you really end up having to be thinking at that moment, wait a minute, were they, was the author in the Bible lying to me? Was God not saying the right things? Did he not get his history in sync? Or is it, if, if I can't trust it here, think about the implications of this. 
If I can't even entrust in the historical veracity of the truth, then where does that lead me now when I read other stories of the Bible? Is this some fictitious element that somehow the author decides to make a colorful story to all remind us how powerful God really is, but using a fictitious story to do it? I think not. I think what he's doing is trying to help us understand in all of its ways, it is so specific in all of its detail. Well, for for years at this point, back in the 1930s, a man by the name of John Garstang decided that he would dig the the site of the tell of Jericho. In the 1930s, he came out with his interpretation of all the evidence that he found there and said... This is the site of biblical Jericho and the battle of Jericho. Thirty years later, a lady by the name of Kathleen Kenyon comes along. Another individual uh, who comes in as an unbeliever, comes to the same evidence, the same location, goes, has to deal with the same artifacts, and she comes to the conclusion, this can't be the site of biblical Jericho. No one was here during that time period, and the ongoing reality is the brochure that was created was from that individual who said that the timing of the conquest doesn't seem to match in a way that put the conquest happening at 1550 B.C. And because we didn't find the pottery we were looking for, that somehow God must have got it wrong, now could you imagine the implications that that gives for inspiration and authority. Well, I can tell you what, as years continue to go by, others have studied that site as well and continue to confirm. But let me remind you of a verse. This is very interesting in 1 Kings chapter 6. It says, in the, fourth, in, the four, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zeev, which is the second month, and he began to build the house of the Lord. And you're asking yourself right now, where is he going with that? Let me tell you. The fourth year of, of Solomon's reign is somewhere around 966 B.C. You add 480 80 years to 966, and what do you get? About 1,447 or so B.C. You subtract the wilderness wanderings of 40 years, and guess what you find is you're right at the 1406 B.C. time period that you would expect exactly what the Bible says there would be, all kinds of archaeological evidence, all kinds of uh, destruction, exactly the way Joshua 6 records it. That was so fascinating. I was uh, there my first trip with one of the archaeologists who was uh, who was really uh, the authority on Jericho. And he had made a whole video, which I would recommend to you watching, called Jericho Unearthed. Uh, and uh, his name is Joel Kramer. He, I often mention this to you about his, his uh, YouTube channel called Bible Expedition. And he brought over the individual who was on that dig from Kathleen Kenyon. And he, as he stood overlooking the tell, and this was just remarkable to me, He looks over at this man by the name of Peter Parr, who was at that dig, who came out with the very different interpretation that no one could have existed here, and he asks Peter Parr, have you ever 
heard of the story of the battle of Jericho. And he says, no, I don't believe I ever have. Now think about that. One of the digs that was done that, verify, that tries to verify from the culture's vantage point, they had never even, even thought of any legitimacy of the biblical account whatsoever. And as he stood at the site at 80 years old was the first time he was confronted with the evidence alongside the biblical history of the Bible. And to hear him have to grapple with, this really lines up well. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? I mean, here you have a group of people who are now on the brink of the conquest, and now the first city in the conquest, which is what Jericho uh, gives to us. Notice this. As we walk through the text today, I want to remind us of this particular truth to carry it through our mind as we walk through it, and it's this, that God desires for all believers to be saved by faith and and live by faith. Saved by faith, live by faith. Now, it's easy all of a sudden if you say, great, God has saved me, but now that's only part of it. He's saved you, and now he's sanctifying you, which is the living by faith. The saved by faith you could never do by yourself. The living by faith you could never do by yourself, except you're involved with that process. You have a choice of how you want to grow and where you want to grow and, and what particular areas you're not growing enough in. It is the duty of every Christian who is saved by faith to live by faith. It is when we get out of alignment in our walk with God that we somehow justify, I'm saved by faith, but I don't necessarily have to live that way where we go wrong. And God's message through Joshua is to tell us and to remind the people of his day, God will save us, God will help us. Notice what the book of Hebrews uh, describes for us in Hebrews 11, and it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and for by it the people of old receive their commendation. You know what that tells me? It tells me this. You want to bring glory to God the way the people of old did? Live by faith. It is going to be hard. You're not going to be able to have all your your questions answered on every way and all the timings. You're not going to get to pick the circumstances and experiences that you would like to see your faith be exercised. But no matter what, you will have to live out your faith. And it is that faith that the people of old were commended to God. And it is this same faith. That our God who, ex- who continues to sanctify us is still brought glory as you and I and people see us in our workplaces and out in the community and they say, they just respond different because they're, well, why is that? They're a believer. Believers tend to respond differently. Well, here's the, as you think about it, uh, take a look just for a moment. Here is what a, an aerial view of the ancient city of Jericho. Now you're quite a bit backed off, but you could understand that this particular, uh, this particular city was about a nine-acre uh, city. If you were to go ahead and send a people to walk around, it would take you at that particular time, walking you know, behind all of this, it's going to take you probably about 
an hour or so. You know, you're going to walk slow, you're going to various things, but, but it's a fairly big city. And this is the city of which we come to in Joshua chapter 6, which I want to remind us in verses 1 and 2. Look with me, if you will. It says, Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and its mighty men of valor. Wow, what? What a remarkable encouragement. Do you notice something about this from from Genesis 1, or I mean not Genesis, but Joshua 1, all the way through Joshua 6, that he tends to have this thematic component to say, my presence will never leave you or I won't forsake you. I will be with you through the conquest. You know, God is so kind in the way that he reminds his people when they need encouragement you know, you think if, if it was up to this particular point and you were a part of the people, you'd say, well, we've heard this how many times? We believe it. Do you realize how many times you and I have heard different truths, but when we get into the thick of a, of a, of a, of a situation, all of a sudden we wonder, where is he? What is he going to do? How is he going to respond? Where will I place my hope? And God has this really, really gracious way of saying, all right, let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. Let me tell you as God's people, one of the ways you can can model your life after the God of heaven and his son, Jesus Christ, is be a person who's an encourager. A person who says, listen, I'm not going to leave you through this. I mean, there's something unique about even when a couple stands before the altar and says, I will commit to this covenant. I will never leave you. I will never go away from you. There is something so special. And when God makes a covenant with his people, and now they have have identified with it, with Passover, he is saying, I am going to be with you. No No matter the circumstances that are going on. Don't ever get tired of encouraging people, even if you have said it to them a hundred times. God will be with us. And God was certainly in that situation with Joshua. And it's fascinating, as he comes to Joshua, he reiterates this to the leader, who would then pass it down through the entirety of the military and on into the families of, of, the, uh, of the people of Israel. And it was just a reminder again and again. Now, notice, because I don't have the time to take and, and divest in every single nuance, but if you would, as you think and read through this, because we we're not going to read through the whole chapter, but just take notice, by the way, when you go back and you, and you look at this, how many times the ark is mentioned in Joshua 6. The ark of the covenant. You'll go before the ark of the covenant. And the ark of the covenant will be with you. And the ark of the covenant will travel with you. And the ark of the covenant will go and walk. You'll take it with you as you walk around. What is he doing? He is affirming that his presence is there with them just as he told them it would be. God never stops encouraging his people because he knew that in the middle, in the the beginning stages of the conquest, this was a very heart-wrenching, difficult moment, although God, they knew God would be with them, and yet at the same time, they had difficulty trusting him by faith. 
You notice that is the story sometimes of our own lives where God promises that he will be with us and he will never leave us or forsake us, but then in the moment of a hardship, a death of a loved one, or other circumstances that are so hard for us, we begin to wonder, but, but are you really there? Do you really love me? Are you going to guide me? We wonder these things, and it's through this story that I think the author Joshua gives us this impression to, as people would read it from latter time periods of the people of Israel, that they would say, our God can be trusted. Our God can be trusted. And over and over again, you recognize that God brought them in at the right time in the right situation. Very interesting in the story as we walk through the Lord's, uh, not only his encouragement, but the timing in and of itself it is remarkable when you think about the reality. Now, here is a sketch of this particular city uh, that was done to try to help reiterate uh, what this would have actually looked like based upon the excavations of the tell at Jericho. And as they excavated this entire, this entire area, this nine-acre plot, to kind of see where these walls would have been, it confirms, now you notice in the story, now, notice even in Deuteronomy chapter 9 that we read that talked about cities who were fortified whose walls reached to the heavens. I mean, here you have a people who are coming up to a city, one of the most heavily fortified cities of, of the Canaanite lands, but this is what they would often do, at least, except, at least in this case of the, of the city of Jericho. You notice it's almost like it's two tiers. And we would expect that given what happened in Joshua 2 when all of a sudden the, the Rahab took in the spies and she took them up and then let them down uh, on the window. Now, I think it goes without saying if you look at this particular uh, sketch of Jericho that she certainly, her house probably wasn't on the inside wall. It was on the outside wall. And here, what we begin to realize is that the components of the story that God says in the biblical account match up to what you see in the archaeological evidence. One, they crossed over the Jordan, they had the Passover, the manna stopped, and they ate from the fruit of the land. Well, how did they do that? Well, it was harvest season. It was the time where the Jordan River had overflowed. The people of Jericho, as they would do in siege warfare, is they would gather up all the wheat. They wouldn't just leave that for the enemy so that they could go and feed all their army as they just waited them out. They would gather up all of that wheat. They would bring it inside the fortified city, and when the siege would happen, they would try to wait them out. So, as you can imagine, and we recognize this in the story of Joshua chapter 2, she takes in the spies, and where does she hide them? Under the flasks that were drying in the sun on the roof because it was harvest season, matches the biblical understanding. Here they come in over the Jordan during the flood season because the flood season was the harvest season, matches the biblical account. Joshua chapter 3 says, uh, in Joshua chapter 3, verse 15, it says, And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, uh, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Joshua 3, verse 15. All of these 
various components of the story begin to add up. Now, think about the instruction of this as you look in this story. Start in verse 3. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. And so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. All right, let's calibrate some detail just for a moment, just so that we can try to get our mind's eye around what's going on at Jericho. Okay, one... Clearly, the Ark of the Covenant is going to be a centerpiece in the life of this conquest. Now, he brings the Ark with them to help not only remind them of God's presence, but he reminds every single enemy, because word is going to travel fast, by the way. If Jericho falls, who's next? And who is the battle? Actually, whoever wins that is going to be the one who has attributed the glory. And who needs to get the glory? It's God. Oh, for years I heard the story of Joshua that was all about the main character, Joshua. Oh, you could be a Joshua. Well, I was Joshua. I am him. No, the story wasn't about him. The story was about God who worked through his people to do things no human person in their right mind would ever think about doing. Now think about how this whole thing unfolds. I mean, clearly there was instruction when he, got, when, it, when he was presented with the unexpected visitor that there was a, a level of instruction about what would happen at Jericho. And now he gathers all his military leaders and he says to them, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the ark. They're going to blow some horns. We're going to walk around the city. On the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. Then we're going to yell and it's just going to fall down. Could you imagine being in that company that day? Like, that was not the kind of conventional warfare that happened in the ancient Near Eastern world. God intended to do things in an unconventional manner so that he then could be highlighted and given all the glory that belongs to him and not to the people of Israel because he said to them, remember, it's not because of your goodness. It's not because of your righteousness. It's because of my power and my name. I am making a name for myself in this land. The ark was the centerpiece of that particular component. Unconventional as it may have seemed, the most remarkable reality in the story of, of Joshua is that no one, not even Joshua, would say something like, are you sure? Like, how, how loud do we yell? I mean... Are we going to know which? They said, okay, if that's what you tell us to do, that's what we're going to do. They had no problem living by faith at times, and Joshua led them this way. Do this because this is what God said. And over and over again, you're going to hear uh, from 
from the Bible. Do this because this is what God says. The Lord gives them this instruction. Now notice it was all the men of war. Now you think to yourself, well, how many was that? Well, it doesn't really give a specific number, but we could go back to Numbers chapter 26 where they had a census of all the men who were 20 years and older, and the net effect of that census was 601,000 men that could, that could go to war. Now, here's what that tells me on a nine-acre plot that you could walk through on a fair, walk around on a fa- fairly easy manner, and you're going to do this once and then return to Gilgal at the camp is that if you had a whole line of these people marching around the city with the Ark of the Covenant at the beginning, is that the first people set out on the company, because what we noticed later on in the instruction was there was a company that was before, there was trumpets blowing from the seven priests with the ram's horns, there was the Ark, and then there was a company that was behind. So you have this entourage of the military men going around the city, and as they would make their way around the city, you could only imagine, maybe it wasn't 601,000, but the number was probably pretty high. So as one was finishing their circumference around the city, there were still groups that were waiting. And they're seeing them head back to Gilgal, and the other ones are still coming around, and this is snaking around the city of Jericho. Now, if you were inside the city of Jericho, by the way, you're its king, you're its mighty men of valor, some individuals who understand the, uh, the, the evidence of the archaeology would say the, the, the amount of population in Jericho probably swelled significantly, seven, 8,000 some people, uh, maybe more uh, as they were going through this. Uh, because of the amount of, of things that they had found there. You're inside the city. Rahab's inside the city. She's looking out her window. Got the cord hanging there. Other people are looking out, and they're just seeing this massive army surround their city. Now, lo and behold, I mean, day one comes. Here they come. You hear these horns. You hear these trumpets. They're blowing. The, there comes the ark. There comes all the men of warfare, and they circle around your city, and it takes them a little while, and then they all retreat back to Gilgal. And the city, at least for the moment, they didn't besiege the city. Day number two, and three, and four, and five, uh, and six come. And you can imagine every morning, like, they're not, in some sense, they, they get up, they do the same thing, they walk around the city, And the people now are like, here they come again. This is a little bizarre. And now they're starting to be more and more on edge. When is it going to happen? What's going to happen here? And on the seventh day, we understand. Now let's try to get an imagery of what this this picture perhaps will have looked like uh, as we think about this story. Now notice the the two-tiered wall system at Jericho is what they found in the archaeological evidence. At the very bottom, you can see our little people holding the ark uh, in blue figures. So when you think the vantage point of these people to, uh, uh, you know, walls that would reach the heavens, here you have a revetment wall that stood some 12 feet high off the ground that was more like a retaining wall so that they could fill it in with dirt, level it out, build a city, and then on the top of that wall, they built mud brick walls that were 25 to 26 feet high on top of the revetment wall. So you're talking about a a wall that's some 40 to 45 feet high, 
And then inside that wall, you had, inside there, it levels out, and a whole host of people would live on the outer rim of the city, probably uh, more poor individuals. You have Rahab, who is conducting uh, an interesting business there, and she's on the outer part of the wall, and they level it out, and then on the very top of that is another mud brick wall that would dry in the sun that they would constantly have to fortify. And so you come, and if you're the people of Israel, you're looking at the city of Jericho, which is now fortified. Everybody is shut in. No one's going in. No one's going out. The gates aren't opening up. Everybody is afraid out of their mind. But in the city of Jericho, they could be tempted to think, well, our walls protect us. Not when, when God sees fit to complete a promise of the conquest, there is no amount of walls that reach to the heavens that will stop him. He will do what is necessary to make a name for himself. And he's sending a message to his people, to the military. And it's something like this. You're going to walk around this city for six days, and on the seventh, you're going to see this. And you're going to walk by these walls that you're, you're constantly saying to yourself, How are we going to get in there? These are huge. These mud brick walls are six feet thick, both on the lower and the upper side. And and, And God is saying, you cannot look only with your eyes. You have to see through the eyes of faith. You have to trust me. And for six days... And on the seventh, seven times they walked around this city and and God was impressing upon their minds, you have got to trust me. And so here they were, one after another. Uh, You could only imagine they would pass. I, I fully expect that those military men, those spies who were part of that company would walk by a certain portion of that wall and they would see that red scarlet cord and they would be saying in their mind, there's Rahab. Like, I I think it was visible, I think it was evident, because Joshua at the end says, go find her. Well, they knew exactly where to find her, and she was on the outer wall. Well, notice he continues uh, in this process in verse number 8. As he continues, he gave the instruction, so now they go out and do it. All the military men were in part of it, the ark was with them. And now, in Joshua chapter 8, it says, And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord, they went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord, following them. The armed men are walking before the priests who were blowing our trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth. Until the day that I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city. Did you get that? He caused the ark. That is the main focus of the story. It is God encircling the city. 
And they came into the camp and they spent the night there. And then Joshua rose early in the morning and they did it again. And now on the seventh day, verses uh, all the way uh, from verses 12 and onward, it shows them, and in verse 15, on the seventh day, they rose early at dawn of day and they marched around the city in the same manner seven times. And it was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, When the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is is within it shall be devoted to the Lord Lord for destruction. Notice, stop there for a minute. He pauses, the author pauses for a moment to remind them of an instruction of what they weren't supposed to do when they took this city. And he said to him, don't take the devoted things. And you can see listed all the, the silver, the iron, the, the, the vessels of bronze were holy to the Lord and they shall go into the treasury of the Lord. But everything else was to be devoted to the Lord. And I know in your mind, as in my mind, as I'm studying this, you're, you're perhaps thinking to yourself, why does God do such things like this? I'm going to have to make you wait in suspense. I'm going to do a whole sermon on what is this issue of being devoted to the Lord. But just before we get there, let me at least say this. To be devoted to the Lord as a precursor to that means that this city would now only ever be used for God's purposes. And in order to do that, they could never do anything again. And God said this city would be devoted to me. You're going to have to hold on to that one until we get to the rest of that. Well, I'll explain it a little bit more. But realize, the city of Jericho with all these high walls, here they come with the instruction, go and do this, and now they're on the seventh day, and they're in the seventh time around, and I mean, could you just imagine, they've been silent this whole time. They've been, now I think the silence has something to just remember of They're silent. They're not like walking around the city, cutting it up with each other. Hey, did you see so-and-so up in in there? No. This was a serious, silent observation of what God was at work in the midst of their life at the very moment that they were walking around those walls. He wanted it that way. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20 is where he says, don't have these things. Don't take the devoted things. Now he says this, so the people shouted and the trumpets were blown and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him and they captured the city. Now, sometimes when you think about the walls of of Jericho, sometimes you think, here you've got a retaining wall, and then you've got a big mud brick wall on the top, and what did they do? Did did the mud brick wall just go, and then lay down flat? No, the, the text says in the Hebrew, the wall fell beneath itself. So all of a sudden, what we have at the archaeological encounter in the city of Jericho today, on the outside of the revetment wall, every single excavation that's ever been done at Jericho, every single one from believer or unbeliever, both of them say, look at all these mud bricks that fell. Both of them admit there was a wall here, there was a people here, and somehow these fell down. Now notice the text, the wall 
fell uh, from beneath itself. Something kind of like this. How did, they, how did this happen? Well, you realize, he said, when you shout, God is going to allow the walls to fall down. They will fall down beneath themselves. Now, when the red brick wall crumbled beneath itself over the revetment wall and the upper wall crumbles beneath itself, what do you think the people had? A ramp. And they wondered, how am I getting into the city? God created the ramp to get into the innermost part of the city. They could climb up the one, and that's exactly what the text says. The wall crumbled beneath itself, and every single man went straight up into the city. Exactly the way the city now sits. And even while I was there, I was so, uh, I would just, you know, you're beside yourself as you're looking at various elements of the conquest from 1400 BC, and, and our guy jumps down behind one of these, uh, you know, barriers because he wants to do that to show us something, and he, and he points out the brick wall that's laying there on the ground. And you're in your mind thinking, this is, this is, this is not some children's story. This is the works of the living God, whose hand crumbled these walls to complete what he wanted completed in the conquest in a way that could show us that. Uh, so interesting that the revetment wall that is found at the city of Jericho looks exactly like that. And the, and, the, and the mud brick walls are found, crumbled beneath themselves, right outside that revetment wall. Over and over again, I want you in your mind to calibrate it with this. God's word is inspired, inerrant, authoritative, specific. It matches every his historical evidence and every archaeological evidence that someone could come to. In this story, no, even though it's misinterpreted by some, when you look back at the biblical evidence that is there, what else do you end up finding? Well, in, in this particular uh, area, you see this. I want to skip over this. But inside the walls, you see pottery. And you know what? Every single excavation of Jericho, believer or unbeliever believer found, grain inside pots, inside storerooms that were burnt because God said you're going to burn the city and it will be burned to the ground and you're not to take any of the devoted things. What army in their right mind doesn't plunder the food in ancient Near Eastern culture? Even the Jews plundered the food, but went, except for when God told them not to do it. And inside those pots, every single archaeologist found burnt grain, some of which they reached to the bottom of some of the grain and planted, and it still came up. But the top of it was burnt in every respect. I have a piece of a rim of a pottery at my house that reminds me that, that was taken from the walls of Jericho legally <laughs> and brought back to remind me that God is at work in ways that sometimes we don't realize what is going on. And that pottery that they find over and over again comes from the time period of the late Bronze Age, 1400 BC, exactly when the Bible says there would be an inhabitant group 
of the Canaanites living in this city with walls that reach to the heavens, with a story that Joshua comes in and realizes that this pottery, and, they, and then every single excavation would find this reality, Joshua 6.24, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And in every marker of that city, there is such a distinct burn line that you can walk down and see. It is burned so hot that the ashes are white. The fire was so hot. And every single archaeologist who have had to explain, this, they all re- re- realize the city was burned. And you know what? God only called them to, to burn certain cities. And this was one of them. And it matches the exact account of the story, of the biblical account of the battle of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. But isn't it remarkable that the Lord delivers? And that's part of his message to us. That God is a God who desires to deliver people. He says, keep away from the devoted things. Don't do the things that you're not supposed to do. Do the things that you're supposed to do. You know, even after Josh, in Joshua chapter 24, it recounts the reality that the men of valor from Jericho still fought. There were men of valor inside the city. I mean, God broke down the walls, but he called the people of Israel to go up in and fight. In the same way, in a sense, he saved our souls. But he does call us to live by faith. He helps us do it. He strengthens our heart. But you still have to make choices to live by faith each and every day when things don't uh, work out exactly as you thought about. Now, notice at the very end of this story, Uh, I love it, in verse 22, it says, but the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire, everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze they put in the treasury. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Rahab and Rahab's family assimilated into the people of Israel and became a living illustration. Every time an Israelite would pass by Rahab or Rahab's family, they had a a small reminder of the people of Israel. These people should have been destroyed, but our God is a God of grace. You know what? We, as we pass along in our world, and we see people who perhaps are doing wicked things and are challenged in various measures that we don't, we have to remind ourselves God is in the business of delivering people but there are also a group who is rebellious and unrepentant and we try to share with them the gospel so that they can understand that there is deliverance from their sin. They can have a relationship with God, the God of heaven, so that they will not be judged and sent for eternity into hell, but they can find grace and mercy 
instead? Well, what kind of, uh, you know, as we, as we look at these particular uh, components, you look at the very end, and I'm going to skip over that verse, but I'll just tell you what it is. Write it down, uh, 1 Kings 16.34, when it, Joshua cursed this city, the question may be coming in your mind, well, did a firstborn and, and did this actually happen? When Joshua said, cursed be the man, at the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and the cost of its youngest shall, be set, shall he set up its gates. And that's exactly what 1 Kings 16.34 records. That all, that all of these things that Joshua mentioned would happen, happened. It says, and so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And Joshua stood before the people in a way to honor the Lord. And I would challenge you this morning, as, you're, as you and I un, uh, have unfolded this particular story, that there is an element that you and I will look towards. And one at first is this, appreciation. Brothers, sisters, you have a inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God in your hands that has been providentially preserved through the ages so that what he intended to say to you has not lost an ounce of its power and authority and sufficiency. He did that for us so that we could know him. He did it so that we could love him and appreciate all the things that God wants us to know about him. Which, which brings me to a question. How serious do you take God's word? Do you go in your devotions and it's just, is it just there to check the box? Or is it there to transform you, not just to inform you? There's a difference when you go to the Bible to be transformed and not just informed. Be in the word as God's people. Know your Bible. Be seriously skeptical of anyone who can't tell you. This is what the Bible says. Paul says, even if an angel would say this to you, to the Colossian believers, don't believe it. What does God's word say? We have to take it serious. He means what he says. He says what he means and he means what he says. Which means that when you and I come to things that we know that we shouldn't do, that God says not to do, that we ought to take it serious to say, I've got to get away from that and be mindful of it. Not just appreciation, but here's something to meditate on. God desires to redeem people by his mercy and grace. That was us too. We needed redemption. We needed him. Here's another thing to meditate on. Faith helps fight fear. I've met so many people in a culture over the last 20 years that have a propensity to just be filled with fear and panic and disarray in their mind. And they think to themselves, well, I had this panic attack. What do I do? Like faith has something to say about that. Faith has something to engage your mind in a way that when you become unraveled, that faith says, even though I can't see, he can provide me a stability that I wouldn't have without it. He can do that for you. I've watched him transform the lives of people who had collapsed in the midst of stores because they had such a panic attack, they were fearful to go out anywhere. 
and have them as they learn to live by faith. Be people who are no longer afraid to get on an airplane, go to the grocery store, interact with people, go out and live in the culture and share the gospel with people instead of living in isolation and fear. Faith helps fight fear, believer. He desires us to remember that. I think there's another lesson. Are we evangelistically minded? I mean, Rahab, she goes and gets all of her family and we're recorded that she was redeemed. She was the first person in her family to be saved. First person to trust in the living God. If you're there, that could be lonely. But remember, God has a plan because when he starts, all of a sudden he starts with one person and then another and then another and then another and then another and he wants everyone to be saved. Take heart, believer, God has saved you if you're that person for a purpose to have this displayed in your family. Here's the ramifications for us. God expects us to live by faith, believers. Which means we've got to ask ourselves a couple of questions and then we'll end, we'll close with this. How well are you handling the trials and tests that God put into your life in order to mature your faith? This is something for you to take home and ponder. I don't know what God has you going through. I don't know what kind of illness you may experience, uh, loss of things that you have had to endure. But if you pay attention to what comes out, you're going to actually see what's going on in there. And if he shows you what's going on in there, you might need to, you may have to consider realigning some things based on what it looks like to live by faith towards the living God. Which means I think it's helpful to ask, what are the areas in your life? That are, what areas in your life are you resistant to God setting the agenda? You realize, as people who like to run their own lives, you like, you're those people too, right? It's when God alters that agenda that we get bent out of shape. For some of us this week, for probably most of us, your agenda isn't at the top of God's agenda. It's not getting your things done, it's getting his things done. You and I have to be pliable enough by living by faith to say, I'm okay with that. Otherwise, you'll just be a person who's filled with panic, fear, anger, bitterness, and it will impact your theological perspective of what you think about the living God in whom you live by faith towards. And remember, as we end today, this Hebrews 11, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, believer. That's how you and I live and breathe and glorify him. It's the only way we will ever live and breathe and glorify him is we're saved by faith, we must live by faith. I hope as you look at the story of Joshua that you're enriched in realizing the precision of the biblical account and biblical history, but that you're challenged to think, what are the areas that I'm not living by faith that I need to and start doing something different? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. 
unfolding this story in a way that helps us see how the biblical history and the archaeological evidence coincide. Lord, we, even if we had no archaeological evidence whatsoever, the, the biblical history that you said what you said and you meant what you said is enough. And yet you allow us the privilege of seeing that our faith is shaped in real time and space that you can be trusted. Lord, thank you for a story like this that helps us live out our faith in a way to glorify you. In your name we pray, amen.